Well, this morning we're looking at um, Storm Riders 2. We looked at Storm Riders 1 last week, uh, about riding the storm, and the, the uh, title is Surviving at All Costs, and How to Live a Resilient Life in a Turbulent World. That's the question that we're asking. Is it possible to do that? Can I just have some light here, please, um, guys? Is that possible? <clears throat> So Storm Riders 2, we're looking at um, the question, survival at all costs, and we're going to look at a, a particular character who tried to survive at all costs. And so we're using, really, the image of storm um, to represent something of the turbulence um, and the pain and the adversity and the, the suffering that we all experience from time to time. And this word, suffering, covers a, quite a wide range, doesn't it? There's all kinds of suffering. There's physical suffering, emotional suffering, there's different degrees of suffering. And so um, <clears throat> we're using this idea of storm when, you know, when things happen in life that really rattle us and shake us to the core um, and, and cause suffering. And, and like I said, there are various degrees. That, you know, we can be grappling with health issues. We can be grappling with bereavement issues, um, injustice, false accusation, unresolved conflict, um, Unrealized dreams and expectations, all sorts of things can, um, can lead us into a place where we're experiencing a storm. We're asking the question, is it possible to live a resilient life in a turbulent world? And last week, um, we looked at the character of Job, and we looked at the kind of scenario where storms happen, and um, they're completely undeserved, and they happen to, when good things, bad things happen to good people. And uh, that's a different kind of a storm. We're looking at a storm today, the kind of storm that we're looking at today, is the kind of storm that very often we create for ourselves um, without necessarily realizing that that's what we're creating. But through wrong choices, through not listening to God, we can create storms for ourselves and get ourselves into real pickles in life. And uh, sometimes they're often of our own making, or at least we've contributed. Uh, we've reacted to things that have happened, perhaps in a wrong way, and it's created a storm. And so we're asking the question, is it possible to live a resilient life, to be strong, to be consistent, um, to stand? The Bible talks so much about, you know, um, standing, and, you know, I'm still standing, and to be persevering, to be, you know, persevering and to be consistent. And the, the New Testament in particular has so much to say about that. And so really, um, God is metaphorically depicted as the rock, isn't he, in, in the Old Testament? So often, he's, it's repeated so many times, God is our rock, he's our high tower, he's our fortress, he's the great I am, he's the eternal God who never changes, he's the alpha and the omega. Um, and this is all in contrast to um, the world that is depicted as being like a garment that will fade, it will decay. Isn't that amazing to just describe the world? It's um, described in Isaiah as a garment that will just fade away. But God's word will remain forever. God will endure forever. His word will remain forever. His righteousness remains forever. And all that we experience here and the physical world that we're in will pass away. And, and so <clears throat> when we ask the question, is it possible to live a resilient life in a turbulent world? Um, if we're saying that we are in Christ, then we are participating in his, his character, aren't we? He says we are participators of the divine nature. And, uh, and the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us. So the answer is yes, it is possible to live a resilient life in a turbulent world. But the question is how? 
How do we do that? That's the big question. We all know it's possible. We all see people who can do it. And from time to time, we think, oh, how do they do that? You know, they're going through so much, and yet they're so strong. They're so full of faith. They're so unmoved by this. And, um, <clears throat> and sometimes we look at other people, and we think, how do they do it? And it's because of that power that is available to us. But the question is, how? How do we do that? And uh, <clears throat> one thing that, we, that I think we have to realize is we do inadvertently create the storms that we find ourselves in. And so much of life is just about, it's about survival, isn't it? We try to cope with life. We try to survive life. And um, it's kind of a basic instinct, isn't it, to survive, to, to cope with life. And, we, and so much of, t of our time is just spent really doing life and coping with life. And um, when we think of what our basic physical needs is, you know, we think of things like food, clothing, and shelter, so much of the world are just grappling with those basic needs, aren't they? Just meeting those needs, just surviving on the edge just having enough food, not having enough food, not having shelter. When we watch the news and we see what's happening all over the world, this whole issue of survival in, in a turbulent world, we know nothing about it really. And uh, so much of the world is just trying to survive. They're grappling with the issue at that physical level. And it's the basic instinct just to survive. And uh, another aspect of our survival is our basic, our emotional needs. We have the, the core basic needs, don't we? To be accepted, to have security, to have significance, and to be loved. Those are our basic core needs. And perhaps we focus more on those in the West because we don't have, we don't have to spend so much time grappling with the issues of just basically where's my next meal going to come from? You know, do I have a roof over my head? We don't have to worry so much about those physical things in the same way. And so we're much more focused on uh, meeting our emotional needs for acceptance, security, significance. And, and we're so motivated and so driven by the pursuit of meeting those needs. And uh, <clears throat> basically, this pursuit can lead us to find the answer in wrong places. And that is a fundamental reason for the storms that we find ourselves in. When we try to meet those core needs in any other place other than God... It leads us to trying to get those needs met in a different way, either through people, through relationships, trying to have expectations of people that they cannot, they cannot give us what we need, what we want. Um, perhaps we try to find it in success, in education, in making money, in prestige, and we're in a society that is obsessed with fame and with being famous. And, and it's even got to the point where people are, want to be on TV just for the sake of being on TV, even if they're making a fool of themselves. As long as they're on TV, that is an achievement, to be famous, even if it's for a wrong reason. Fame in itself is, is, an, is, is success. And it's just completely bizarre the way things have gone. And so we're so driven by the need just to be significant. I suppose appearing on TV, even if it's for a bad reason, gives us a kind of significance. Is, it must be the thinking behind it. And, um, and so the, the purpose, really, of this message is to say this morning that any attempt to meet any of our needs, any of these needs, um, in any way other than through the Lord, um, it will lead to absolute devastation. And we're going to look at a character who tried to do that in the Bible and just caused so much hassle for himself and for everybody else in his life. And the purpose of the storm is to bring us back to ourselves, a knowledge of ourselves, a confrontation of ourselves, and an embracing of God and all that he has for us. That is the purpose of any storm. And so when you're going through a hard time, a good question to ask is, Lord, what am I supposed to be learning out of this? And what am I meant to be learning about myself?
And if we have that approach to difficulties, instead of always wanting to, you know, cast out the devil and let's, Lord, remove this problem from me, is maybe to ask the basic question, God, what am I meant to be learning from this? What am I meant to be learning about myself and about you? And what am I meant to be doing differently? And, uh, and so this is kind of a basic instinct for survival. Another very basic thing that we do to survive is to avoid pain. Um, <clears throat> And we develop all sorts of mechanisms to cope with life and to avoid pain. And you know, when you've been hanging into a situation for a long time, and you know, you've been praying for a prodigal for a long time, you know, the pain of unmet expectations for a long time can really, really be wearing, and it can get you down. Praying for loved ones that, that haven't come to the Lord in the time frame that you really want. And you just think, do you know what? I have had enough health issues, praying for God to heal, and it doesn't happen, when, in the time frame, or if ever. And all these things can wear us on. People, you know, who are praying, for, you know, couples who can't conceive and they're praying for a baby, that kind of thing can just, the, the you know, having their, their expectations set up, you know, they maybe go for treatment, fertility treatment, and just to be let down, and it happens time and time again. After a while, it gets, it just wears you down. Um, Perhaps you've had a prophetic word over your life and 20 years have gone by and it's not happened and it can lead to real disappointment. Disappointment with God, disappointment with life in general, disappointment with dreams that haven't worked out perhaps, um, expectations that haven't worked out. And just this disappointment um, can lead to a feeling of wanting to give up. And that is a survival mechanism, to just give up. If I change the goalposts, if I don't expect anything good to happen, then I won't have to live with this pain. This avoidance of pain um, makes us want to give up. And it can be a, a survival mechanism. A lot of people live in, in the second best realm. They live in um, a realm where they've given up. They've given up hope. And, um, <clears throat> and it's just a way of surviving, of not having to live with the pain. But the problem is that can bring problems of its own on down the line when you abandon hope. And uh, in Proverbs 13, 12, it says, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And uh, Rachel Hickson, um, we, we heard her at Grapevine, um, she's got a brilliant uh, message on, um, what's it called? Living between prophetic vision and reality. It's a fantastic message on this, where, you know, when God has given you a prophetic word over your life, <clears throat> and, and he's, he's given you this word, you can see it in the spiritual realm, but you're here in reality somewhere, and you're trapped between, you know, this hasn't happened, and this is reality of the situation, and you think, have I heard God right? Have I not heard God right? Um, do I need to change the boundaries here? I just need to stop expecting that now. Maybe you've been praying for healing, and you think, you know what, I'm just going to stop praying for healing now. And there's this uh, temptation to give up. <clears throat> Uh, the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, um, The Theology of Hope, he wrote that hell is hopelessness. And God doesn't want any of us to be in that state. He doesn't want us to experience lack of hope. And so we need to view pain really in a different way. Rather than try to avoid pain, we need to view pain as <clears throat> a kind of a feedback system or a kind of a warning light that really is telling us um, what we need to do in certain situations. So, for example, when you're feeling fear, that's a warning, really, that you're not trusting God. So it's telling you, get back to the Word. Get back to 
what God says. Hold on to God's word. And, uh, and instead of avoiding pain, we need to be um, embracing pain in a different way, understanding that kind of pain in a different way and letting it make us run to God. And um, it's a bit like the, the pain, really. There's a, the positive pain of childbirth, isn't there? Where we know the pain is producing something. And there is pain. There's a sense in which pain can actually be a good thing. But it, it feels horrible at the time. But it can be producing something in us in the long run. So we're going to look at a character um, who developed all sorts of um, mechanisms in his life and to try and meet those deep core needs that he had for acceptance and for security and for significance and for love. The character of Jacob, very interesting character. I found this absolutely fascinating. Um, And it's a massive, it covers 10 chapters in the Bible, the the story of Jacob. Um, Well, up to a certain point, it goes on further if you're going to go into Joseph as well and the part that he had to play in that. But this specific part of the story takes 10 chapters. And um, we're going to look at... um, Jacob developed um, a way, coping mechanisms and strategies for getting what he wanted in life. And he was basically, he had a grab and grasp kind of survival mechanism, a a mentality where he was a go-getter. He'd go and get what he needed, what he wanted. And he was even prepared to, to deceive and to lie and to manipulate people in order to get what he wanted, in order to kind of manufacture his own blessing. And this is a really, really good study for all of us, but for young people in particular, because Jacob was young, and he thought he knew better than God. And you know, we all think we're invincible when we're young. You know, we never think this is going to happen. We never think we're going to have a bike accident. We never think we're going to fall and break our finger. We never think anything bad is going to happen. And you just think, you know, you never think you're going to break your ribs, you know, when you're kayaking. You just think you're invincible when you're young. And, And you know what? You even think that you know better than God. We can think that, that we actually know better than God. And God knows he's got an identity and a plan for our lives. And Jacob made the mistake at the beginning of his life of thinking that he knew best. And I'm telling you, boy, did he create storms for himself and for other people through wrong choices. So Genesis 25, um, very interesting. It says that um, about the birth of, of the two boys, Jacob and Esau, um, it says, when the time came for, for her to give birth, this is um, uh, verse thir- 24, it says, the first two come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they called him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Now, the meaning of Jacob literally meant grabs the heel. But the figurative understanding of that was actually the deceiver. And I'm sure um, his parents really didn't intend that particular meaning to be attached to him. They were just thinking of the literal meaning of, you know, grasps the heel, because that's how he came out. Um, grasping the heel of his brother, he came out second. And, um, but it actually figurative, figuratively meant back then the deceiver. And what a prophetic um, statement or pro- what a prophetic name that was for Jacob because that's exactly what he became. He became the deceiver. And, uh, and as we read on, it says the two boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. 
And so we have a scenario where we've got the two brothers, and Esau is the archetypal male. You know he's the outdoor guy, the hunter, the gatherer. You know he's described as hairy and um, darker-skinned, swarthy, and he must have been fit. You know that running around hunting animals and shooting and killing and so on. You know, he was your typical, typical male. And he was loved by his dad. So he had attention from his father. He had an affinity with his dad. And uh, that must have created in Jacob a sense of, of jealousy and a sense of not being accepted by his dad. And he wanted to be like Esau. He must have wanted to be like his brother. And it describes Jacob. He must have been paler skinned. He, he says he just stayed around the tents. He was kind of more of a mummy's boy, was Jacob. And at one point he's described as making stew. And he's more domesticated. He was not there fighting. He was making the stew at home. And he was a completely opposite character to Esau. Esau was the action man out there hunting, the archetypal male. And here's um, Jacob, the opposite. And you know, he must have felt jealous of his brother, the attention that he got from his dad. He wanted to be significant. He wanted to be loved. He wanted to be accepted. And uh, instead of accepting and finding his identity in Christ and accepting who he was and feeling comfortable in his own skin, he really, really wanted what Esau had. He really wanted to be in Esau's position. Esau, also being the oldest, was going to be the one who um, he, he inherited the birthright and um, the blessing that he was going to inherit on down the line. So he must have wanted desperately to be like his brother. That tells us that he wasn't happy with who he was. And so um, <clears throat> he develops in life a kind of a, a do-it-yourself, manufacturing um, blessings for yourself kind of approach. Instead of trusting God, God had a, a blessing, a plan for Jacob's life as well. It says that earlier on in the chapter, that God had a plan for both of these boys. But he really didn't bother to find out what God had planned for him. He wasn't interested in plugging into what, what was he about. You know, this was Esau. He was the oldest. And he had this position of being the oldest son, which came with it, you know, the birthright and the inheritance and so on. So Jacob was jealous of that, and he wanted that. He didn't take time to think, what does God have for me? Who am I meant to be? What's my function in life? What blessing does God have for me? Completely bypassed all that and wanted what Jacob had. Does it sound familiar? Not being happy with who we are, thinking that being somebody else would be better, thinking that if we had what somebody else had, that we'd be happier. And so he was jealous of his position. And so um, he saw, found an opportunity on down. It says um, later on he finds um, Esau in a vulnerable moment. He's been hunting and he's absolutely starving. And um, he's, 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 he finds him completely weak and vulnerable. And he, he actually bribes him. He says, I will make you stew because Esau wants him to feed him. He says, I will give you stew in return for your birthright. And Esau must have been in a very, very reckless character, very impulsive character, an action man. You know, don't think, you just act now and think later. And so he does something absolutely drastic. He agrees to this. And so begins the process of basically Jacob stealing his identity. So we, we find, you know, we talk about identity theft, don't we? So it's a familiar phrase right now, but yet this happened right back then in the Bible. Jacob was trying to steal his brother's identity. And so for a bowl of stew... He swaps, um, Esau's prepared to swap his birthright for a bowl of stew. He must have thought, oh, well, nothing will come of that. I'm hungry, I just want to, I want to eat now. And so <clears throat> um, 
Jacob thinks that he will achieve um, happiness with himself if he can have this status, if he can have this position that Esau had. Maybe he'll be loved by his dad more, whatever, whatever his thinking was. The Bible actually doesn't really tell us. Um, but he knew with that would come blessing, would come a certain status, a certain prestige perhaps. And so he's out to, he's out to, to bribe and to manipulate in order to get what he wants. And so we see in chapter 27, he carries through with this whole identity theft by actually going to the lengths of deceiving his dad, who is blind, and um, he actually masquerades as his brother. He even, he even puts on, like, fake hair and stuff and to present himself to his dad, and he receives the blessing while Esau is out hunting, and he abs- completely deceives. He tells lie after lie in order to um, step into... Uh, Esau's shoes and uh, Esau comes back and is absolutely livid of course and issues a death threat so the two boys have been jostling and, and you know the sibling rivalry thing even happened in the womb it tells us before this and this has continued through their lives Jacob constantly wanting to be in Esau's position, grasping for what Esau has, grasping at his heel right from the beginning. And now he's finally taken his blessing, which cannot be changed. It cannot be um, reversed in any way. And so we find um, Jacob then on the run. He has to flee with this death threat over his life. And um, he's, he flees to... Um, his brother Lab- his, cu- his uh, uncle Laban, which is his um, mother's brother, and um, on the way, this is very very interesting. You know, God is so faithful. Here, this guy, he's been such a rogue. He he has not even bothered trying to find out what God has for him. God has even said, "I've got a plan for you. I've got you know, I've got a future for you. I've got blessings for you. I've got y- your own unique blessing." I've got your identity sorted for you. He hasn't even bothered trying to find out what that is. He's now created this mess. He's deceived his his father. I'm sure that's caused problems between his his parents and obviously Esau. He's on the run. He's created an absolute mess. And while he's on the journey, on his way to find um, Laban, chapter 28, verse 15. um, We'll take it a bit further up, actually. Um, he decides, he stops for a rest to have a sleep, to sleep the night. And he has this dream, the famous Jacob's Ladder. And in that dream, God actually says to him in verse 15, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Imagine a promise like that. To a rogue like that, God is still saying, you know, I've got a plan for your life. That's not to say it's the same plan as what Jacob was planning for himself. But God is meeting Jacob. And it was a God moment for Jacob, en route. He's in a bad place. He knows he's made a huge mistake. He's made a huge mess. And and instead of dealing with it, he's running away. And so many of us do that. We make a mess and then we want to run away. We don't want to stay and fix it. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to say sorry. We just want to run. And so he removes himself. And God is so gracious and he meets with him. And when Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, surely... The Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. Jacob is so unaware of God in his life. He's so unaware of the plans that God has for him. He's so unaware of what could have been. He's that busy trying to manufacture his own life and, you know, sort his own life out. He hasn't even consulted God. 
totally unaware of what God has for him. And here God meets him and he says, God is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This must have been a real deep experience for him. He called the place the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it on top of it. And he called the place Bethel. And then verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, now I think this is a, 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 an astounding thing that he says here. After all that's happened, he says, if God will be with me. Now, God has said he will be with him. And now he's saying, if God will be with me. He's still not convinced, is he? If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food and eat, to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. He's doing a bit of a deal with God here. He's saying, God, I don't really believe you, even though God has said all that to him. God has taken the trouble to give him that experience, to meet with him, to the point that he recognizes this is the very gate of heaven. He's still saying if and when. You know, if this works out like you say. There's no real faith here, is there? He says, then the Lord will be my God. In other words, you're not my God now. You will be then if you, de if you deliver. If you do this, then yeah, okay. This is a deal God I'm making with you. You know, I, you'll be my God when I get, you know, I'm going to pursue my course here. And when I get to where I'm going, and if this thing pans out like you say, then you will be my God. What the cheek? After all he's done and the chaos that he's created, he's just so unaware of what God wants to do for him and what God is able to do for him and what he needs to do in return. And he says, this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Well, that's good. He's going to give God a tenth. Um, but he's still not completely convinced. And how many, you know, this is a really serious position to be in. Do you know, I think a lot of people are right here. We've had experiences of God. We know God um, can, can heal. We know God can, is powerful. We know that God wants us to be obedient. But you know what? This is the most dangerous place to be in. It's one thing to make mistakes through ignorance. And through just not knowing any better, it's another thing to have met God and to have had an experience like this and then still say, but you know what? I'm still going to do it my way. I'm still not convinced. I know all this stuff, but you know what? I still want to do it like this. I'm still going to do it my way. He was a stubborn, stubborn um, character, full of his own do-it-yourself attitude. And he still is not bowing the knee. It's a really, really serious place to be in. He'd had a revelation, and he was neglecting. He wasn't acting on it. He was still pursuing his course, and so he continues on to Laban. Now, I wonder what would have happened at this point if Jacob had had a different response, because this story pans out quite drastically in the things that happen. I wonder what would have happened if he would have had a different response to God and submitted to God. And said, turned around to God and said, what is the identity that you have for me? I've stolen my brother's. I've wanted my brother's identity. What do you have for me? I need a blessing from you. I wonder if he'd have bowed the knee at that point and really decided to be obedient and submitted to God, whether the whole course of the rest of the story would have been different. I think it would have been. Because he pursues his journey to Laban. He gets there. And boy, does he meet somebody who is an expert deceiver an expert common who is better at all that stuff than he is. I tell you, you know the saying, what goes around comes around? 
Well, he walked straight into it. He walked into uh, a situation with his uncle, who was the expert deceiver. And uh, I don't have time to go into the full story, but he decides he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and uh, Laban tricks him. I don't know how on earth all this happened, but anyway, he manages to trick him into marrying the older daughter, Leah, whom he didn't fancy at all, because it says she had weak eyes. And I don't know if that means that she just wasn't attractive or what, but he definitely didn't fancy her, and he was not pleased at all. In fact, there's a really funny bit where, I can't remember where the verse is, where it actually says, you know, he, he wakes up in the morning and there's Leah. Whoa, what a shock. You think you've got married and, and you've married Rachel and you wake up in the morning, it's Leah there. So he's quite devastated by this, really. And uh, can you imagine being tricked into marrying the wrong person? The bride's being switched and you end up with the wrong bride. Now, he deceived his, his brother, he deceived his, his father. Now, Laban has played the ultimate trick on him. And you know what? He had to work for seven years to get, to get her. And now he has to start again. He's, he's prepared to do it again for, for um, the, the woman he really wanted, for Rachel. And so Laban says, okay, I'll give you Rachel, but you need to work another seven years. And so he does the same. And all in all, he's with Laban for 20 years. And Laban turns out to be the man who cons the con artist. I mean, Laban is good at what he does. I'm telling you, <clears throat> I think Jacob could have saved himself a lot of hassle back then. Had he submitted to God, or when he had that dream and he had the Jacob's ladder experience, he probably wouldn't have walked into this mess because God would have directed him somewhere else perhaps. But he walked into this. And he, through his own willfulness and his own determination, his, his reluctance to obey God, his reluctance to listen to God, his wanting to do stuff in his own way, he created disaster for himself that has repercussions for not only himself but everybody else. So he ends up, um, <clears throat> and during this period, I think in this period of his life, there must have been a kind of a sobering that went on in Jacob, a sense of him starting to realize what he had done to other people, how he'd hurt other people. The realization must have started to hit him. This is what deceiving people feels like. This is what manipulating people feels like. And it must have been a period of reflection and to some extent facing um, the thought of the devastation that he'd left behind. <clears throat> and so eventually, after 20 years, things come to a head and he now, without, I can't go into the story because it's so long, but he now has to leave Laban. Things have gone wrong there. Things have come to a head and he has to move on. And during that time, he's become very prosperous and he's been very successful. He's accumulated a lot of wealth in, in, the, in the form of livestock. And he's um, had all these wives and their maid servants and all the children that that has brought. So he's, he's grown as a family and, and in terms of all that he possesses. But he now has fallen out with Laban and he needs to move on. And so he moves on and he finds that now Laban is pursuing him. So he's now between a rock and a hard place. He's been running from Esau. And he's had to live with that death threat over him and the fear of Esau catching up with him, his past catching up with him. Now he has to leave Laban, who is now pursuing him as well. And God has told him, go back, go back home, go back and face Esau. And of course that produces fear and anxiety in him. And it's never easy to face the messes that we make, to go back and sort out the disasters that we've left behind, the people that we've hurt. We just want to start again and not have to sort anything out. And um, 
In 31.12, while he's on, he starts to run from Laban, God tells him, I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am, with, I am the God of Bethel, reminding him of that place, that experience that he had with him, um, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now, leave this land at once and go back to your native land. And so God is pushing him to go back and deal with his past and confront his past. And in absolute fear and anxiety, um, if you pick it up in chapter 32, Jacob has to consider the whole prospect of meeting up with Esau. So what does he do? He, He resorts to his old conniving and manipulation, and he sends messengers to tell Esau, hey, Esau, I'm really prosperous. I've got all these animals. I've got all this wealth and prosperity. And I think what he was trying to do, I think the subtext there is, I think he was trying to bribe Esau or um, something of that kind of, he was trying to, to, to kind of organize the situation and control the situation really rather than trusting God. God has already said, go back and I will be with you. But he's still trying to sort it out. And he sends this, um, this message to Esau. And the message comes back from Esau. Well, I've got 400 men. Well, now Jacob is absolutely terrified. What does that mean? He's sending an army to kill me? He's absolutely terrified. And he feels that, well, Jacob, Esau is literally trying to track him down. He's literally got an army to try and track him down. So he's in a desperate situation right now. And he's tried to appease Esau by saying, you know, I've got all this stuff I can give you. And, uh, you know, Jacob has, has come to a point where it's all starting to unravel. He's been relying on his ability to sort things out, to think things through, to work things out, to manipulate, to deceive, to get people to do this, to get people to do that. Now he's trying to to sort out this kind of, um, the the prospect of meeting Esau and trying to bribe him, trying to sort to engineer that whole situation. And it looks like it's not working. And he's absolutely desperate. And, um, And it says that he prays. Interesting, isn't it? Last resort. He does everything he can do, and he decides to pray. It's like he realizes, you know what? Stuff can't save you. I've got all this stuff that I've been living for. I've thought it was going to make me happy to have you know, the prestige and, and the, the, um, the accumulation of stuff and the wealth and the family. And he realizes none of that can save him. He's now standing on his own. He can do nothing to help himself. And so he prays and he asks God for help. And even though he prays and he asks God for help, he says, um, 32 verse 9, it says, Then Jacob prayed, O God, my father of Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord, you said to me, go back to your country. Saying, God, you told me to go back. And your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. So the prayer goes on. And he's asking God for help. And even though he's got to this point where he is unraveling, he knows he can only turn to God. And God wants us to get to that point where we unravel and we can only turn to him. And that's the purpose of the storm, is to get us to realize that we cannot rely on anything that we have done in our own strength. Any of those coping strategies that we've had to get through life, to meet those deep core needs, they don't work. God wants us to get to that point where we realize only he can sort us out. And, um, but even after that, what does he do? He still sends all his livestock onto Esau. He doesn't change his plan. He still does what he wants to do. He is a stubborn character, isn't he, Jacob? 
And so he sends all his livestock on, and he sends all his families on, and they're all layered. Leah, of course, the one he doesn't fancy as much, goes on first with all her family, and the last is Rachel. And, uh, <clears throat> and we find Jacob is in the middle of a storm. He's on his own. And he's left in the desert by himself. Everybody has gone on, and he is left by himself. And we get that famous um, passage where Jacob wrestles with God. An absolutely amazing, amazing scenario. But he's stripped of everything. He's in the desert by himself. There's nobody there to help him. He's got no wealth. He's got nothing. It's just him in the desert by himself. And you know, the the New Testament um, tells us of a story called the prodigal son where, you know, a young guy goes off the rails, doesn't he? And um, he asks for his inheritance in advance, which is basically saying, Dad, you know, you know, you might as well just die. You know, I just, I just want my money more than, than you. It was a horrible thing to do. And he got his inheritance, and he went and he squandered it. And he ended up um, getting to a point where he just lost all his money, and he was just hitting rock bottom, and he was feeding pigs. And the literal translation, when he, when he finally kind of repented and came back, the literal translation of that is, he arrived at himself. Stripped of his pride, his arrogance, his attempts to do life his way, and blow all the consequences, finally it all caught up with him. Found himself in a storm, and he arrived at himself. And you know, so many of us create these storms for ourselves because we're trying a do-it-yourself kind of approach to life. We're trying to do it ourselves. We're trying to fix it. We're trying to carve up the kind of life that we want and not really aware or plugged into what is it God has for me? What is it that God has for me? What is my real identity? What is my real purpose? We can only find that plugged into him. And so we find um, Joseph is, or Jacob is in this position where, like the prodigal, he's arriving at himself. He's on his own. And um, <clears throat> Genesis 32, 22, and I don't have time to read it in detail, but basically um, he finds himself in the desert and he is wrestled. Now the initiative is taken by the other person. He's wrestled by an angelic stroke physical representation of God, a man who represents the, the presence of God. And um, this person takes him on and wrestles him. It's very interesting. It says, um, <clears throat> it says in verse um, 24, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So the man took the initiative. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with this man then the man said let me go for it is daybreak and so Jacob is in this point where he has completely unraveled he is on the floor of the desert wrestling with God and what is all this about what is this whole thing about it just so so strange isn't it and it's really about God catching up with Jacob and it's all about God takes us back to the point that we deviated from And the point that he deviated from was this whole issue of blessing, where he stole Esau's identity, wanting his own identity, wanting to create his own identity, and not really really going for what God had for him. So this is God engaging. It's a process of God engaging with with Jacob. And he's taking him to that point where he basically rejected what God had for him. And it's interesting, a turning point comes in this, in this wrestling, whereby in the end it's the man saying, will you let go of me? 
So a turning point comes whereby Jacob is now holding onto the man. Whereas before he was being wrestled down, now he's the one wrestling the man. And he gets to a point somewhere in this process with God, in this engagement with God, where it's about him seizing God and saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He realizes, he's come to, he's hit rock bottom, he's on the floor in the desert, and he realizes, do you know what? All I need is God. I thought I needed this identity, I thought I needed to be number one, I thought I needed possessions, I thought I needed this, that, and the other, but all I need is God. And he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And this wrestling thing is symbolic of this whole process of our wills being engaged and, with God and, and somehow the, the resistance that we have to God and the need for that to subside and for us to kind of to, to fall back and say, Lord, you know, I'm going to submit to whatever you have for me. And it's a wrestling process. And people who are stronger willed, I think Jacob is a very strong willed character. We can see that clearly, can't we? The process that he's been through. It's taken so much to break him down. A lot of people would have broken a lot sooner. But for very strong willed characters, God has to go to great lengths to get us to this point of stripping us back where we have absolutely nothing. We've unraveled and we know that all we need is God. And so much has to happen to bring us to that place. And so he gets to, he realizes the utter failure of his life, the mess that he's made. He's stripped of that manufactured, self-built identity. And he swaps it for the identity that God has for him. He takes on board the blessing. He says, I want your blessing. You know what? I've spent all my time trying to have Esau's blessing. Trying to, to have the kind of life that I thought I wanted. He says, but now I'm not going to let you go to your blessing. I want your blessing, God. And that's what God wanted to give him in the first place. And this is signified by a name change. This is very interesting because God does this with people. When he works with somebody and he changes them, he changes their name. And so he has a life-changing experience through submission to God. And he's given the name Israel, meaning struggles with God. And the more we struggle with God, the more storms we're going to have, the more devastation we're going to be in, and the more we're going to hurt other people, the more we're going to hurt ourselves, and the more mess we're going to make, the more we struggle with God. But I think this word struggle has something of engaging and grappling in it. it it's, I don't think it just was a negative thing where God's saying, I'm calling you, um, he struggles with God because you've been such a tough cookie to, to break here. I don't think he, it was just that. I think it was a sense of his engagement with God. He's engaged with God and he's submitted. He's got to a point of submission. And I think a lot of us are in this, a lot of people are in this position where they haven't really, they're struggling with God. Where we want so much of God, but we really don't want to submit completely. We don't want to be obedient. We don't want to submit our lives. We want to do life our way. And so we struggle. We're in th and this struggle is painful. And it causes devastation. And it's hard work. It is stressful. I'm telling you, it will, it will destroy your life. And the quicker that we learn the need to submit to God and walk in the blessing and the identity that he has for us, things will turn around for us. And the other external um, sort of result of this engagement with God was the dislocation of his hip. Now, I used to think this was odd. I used to think, you know, you go to it when I was little, you know. This bit always used to puzzle me, and I never really understood why. You, know, you go to church to be prayed for, to be healed. You know, God is the God who heals. Why did his encounter with God result in him being worse physically than he was before? It just seemed, seemed strange. And, um, but this encounter with God 
I think God needed to do something physical to Jacob as a permanent reminder of what he had done and what he had achieved and the, the place that he'd got. I think God knew Jacob is a tough cookie. He's a tough nut to crack. We've made some progress. I'm going to leave him with a reminder that he will have to live with day in, day out. Because do you know what? It's in our weakness that we're made strong. And God wants us to rely on him. And he wanted Jacob to always remember that he had this mark of distinction. I was thinking of Mark Generation when I was thinking of this. This, this mark, God, God left a mark on him. He changed his name. And he changed his countenance. He changed his appearance. He was now a man with a limp. He was different to look at. He was now a changed person and had to be manifest in a physical way. And you know, when, we're, when we have an encounter with God, it will change who we are. It's going to change our identity. It will change our future. It will change our name. God's got a thing about names, about putting labels on people. It will change our name and it will mark us out as being different from everybody else and different from how we were before. And so this um, dislocation thing, I think it was um, God saying to Jacob, you know, I need you to remember that without me you can do nothing. You need me in your life. And do you remember Paul was in that position where he had a thorn in the flesh that God didn't remove? And Paul says, my, uh, you know, he writes, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And God wants us to get to a place where we can find him in the storm. We can find ourselves and we can, find, we can live a life of stability by choosing to be obedient and choosing to embrace the identity that God has for us and to be comfortable in our own skins um, and to be comfortable. I mean, why did, Jacob must have felt, why did Esau have to come first? You know, it's one thing if you have an older brother and there's like two years between you or whatever, but twins, you know, and he came first, it's not fair. And, you know, but we need to, to come to a place where we accept who we are in Christ and we are plugged into who we are in Christ. Otherwise, we're going to go after, through storm after storm after storm. But the purpose of the storm is that we come face to face with who we are, that we arrive at ourselves like the, the prodigal son, and that we realize that we need to submit to God and that his grace is made perfect in weakness.